This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 9.36 a.m. Good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wang Xiaoning and Mark Tan. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly Friday roundup of the top stories that have dominated the news cycle all throughout the week and also bits and pieces of news that you may have missed. All this is to make sure that we send you off into the weekend uh, as a fountain of information and uh, facts to share with all that you meet. Normally, I'm just a source of amusement, but never mind. Yes, <laughs> fountain of information. That's fountain what we... of information. But uh, let's talk about the big story that dominated the headlines this week, right? And uh, not too long ago, we were talking about India and the G20 summit and the success of that visit. Uh, this week, it was also about India, but it's taken a bit of a turn because we watched bilateral relations between India and Canada I mean, I say disintegrate, but maybe disintegrate is too strong a term. But they definitely went on a downward trajectory after Ottawa accused New Delhi of being involved in the death of Hardeep Singh Nijar, a Canadian citizen who is a leader of the separatist Sikh movement in India. Now, this killing occurred in June, um, and it was just this week that the uh, Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, came out with these allegations, which, to no surprise, India has vehemently denied. Now, Nishna is wanted by the Indian authorities for alleged terrorism and conspiracy. And this whole allegation that's been announced by Mr. Trudeau has created a tit-for-tat, you know, retaliation between both countries, right? So each side has already expelled one, one each other's diplomats. And India has also issued warnings to its nationals in Canada, especially its students, to exercise utmost caution. And, you know, I think the most latest news is the Canadian High Commission in India has also adjusted diplomatic numbers in India and pulling back some of its diplomats there. And the most latest one, of course, is Canada did previously suspend negotiations for a free trade agreement with India and last week's trade minister cancelled a trip the country planned for October. Okay, so some information in terms of the relationship that the two have. Canada has 1.4 million people of Indian origin. Most of them are Sikhs, making up 3.7% of the country's population. Now, this is, of course, 2021 numbers. Now, India also sends the highest number of international students to Canada. In 2022, they made up 40% of total overseas students at 320,000. So with this suspension of visas, it's going to impact the ordinary Indians also because there's a lot of to and fro back, I'm sure. But I think what analysts have said basically is that it looks like the relationship is at an all-time low. It's not like they've never been strained before. They have been but looking not so very good. So the question is, how do these two countries dial back their rhetoric and basically get back to normality or whatever is normal in for them? I think um, Justin Trudeau did try to de-escalate this week. I think on Thursday, he made comments about he didn't, these allegations weren't meant to provoke um, India, although it, it, I think those, 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 those were really strong allegations mm. that they made. You know, you don't... Um, I guess, disclose those type of accusations without being very certain of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, and uh, yeah, I think right now everyone's wondering what would be uh, the way to de-escalate the tensions and maybe go back to a little bit more of um, a neutral stance. Uh, I think for now, it's going to be very testy between them. And a part of me wonders, where did 
the relations break down what was the point because mm. it isn't an overnight thing right it must have happened over months over maybe even years the two leaders were in power where did that uh, personal rapport uh, suddenly falter correct because i think even in the g20 summit that was held in india recently there was no uh, bilateral private meeting between canada and india it was more of them meeting the sidelines and then i think the canadian prime minister has also been trying to get its traditional allies to come out to support it you know the five eyes intelligence sharing lines but i think in terms of all its allies who's also trying to cozy up with India. They've refused to come out to spot Canada on this one and basically remain fairly silent about it. So like, for example, in Britain, has refused to publicly criticise India because they also have their own bilateral trade talks with, with India. And, you know, I think Prime Minister Rishi Sunak needs this FTA agreement to go through as a political big win between him and India. So if I look at this um, article by the Financial Times, it notes that ties between India and Canada have been strained even as far back as 2020 when New Delhi accused Ottawa of interference after Justin Trudeau spoke up in favour of protesting farmers. So there was that huge uh, agricultural rally um, mm. that took that, was, that went on for some time. Um, and uh, understandably, India doesn't take too kindly to foreign countries siding with, um, I guess, the party that it is not pro-government. Yeah. Well, let's watch this space. Sometimes a lot of noise and after that, it just suddenly goes quiet again and then everybody carries on as normal. Uh, but what's not carrying on as normal is the US student debt balloon. Um, the moratorium for that is coming to an end in the United States. Basically, there was a three-year lull and that was given during the pandemic that students didn't have to repay, of course, all their student debt. But just to give you some context in terms of the issue, now, student debt in the United States has more than doubled over the last two decades. Now, about 45, 44 million US borrowers collectively own more than $1.6 trillion in federal student loans. Additional private loans bring that total to $1.7 trillion, surpassing auto loans and credit card debt. Only home mortgages is larger than that in the United States. So, this is a serious issue. And when the moratorium ends, what does this then mean for the consumer, the US consumer, because what studies have found is that the Americans who did take, who had enjoyed this moratorium, they didn't save in anticipation of having to pay it back. They actually spent the money. So now that they have to do so, what are they going to do? Can they afford to? You know, that's right, Shannon, because I think President Joe Biden had campaigned on cancelling certain loans and many borrowers operated for more than three years with the expectation that some, if not all of their debt, would be wiped away. But in June, the Supreme Court rejected President Biden's plan to permanently erase as much as 20,000 of college debt per person. And now, obviously, you know, you're going to repay back your stuck in a quandary. So I think the total um, student debt that was uh, due to be forgiven was worth about 400 billion US dollars. Uh, now it could all come back into the equation. And I think uh, students have been, or those having student loans, have faced a roller coaster, right? Mm. Be because initially they thought they would be have their debt forgiven, and then it's not, and it's just going back and forth. It's uh, causing a lot of stress um, among those who will have to service back their debts. And I also just puts into sharp relief just how expensive higher yes. education is in the U.S. that uh, you have to bring these debts with you throughout your working yeah. career, essentially, to pay this off. Because I was reading articles in the Asia, uh, Wall Street Journal, the uh, New York Times, and they always quote students who say, you know, I've been paying all this debt for seven, eight years and I haven't really made a dent in it, right? Because they, all they're doing is actually servicing the interest rather than paying down the principal. 
So now that these debts have to be repaid, what's the repercussion for the US economy? Aside from the personal pain that you might feel, uh, Goldman Sachs estimates that renewed stolen loan payments to cost households about $70 billion per year. This is enough to subtract as much as 0.8 percentage points from consumer spending growth in the fourth quarter, helping to slow it to 1.4%. Now, this is against the backdrop of, of course, we know the question of whether US is going to be able to engineer a soft landing. Now, at the same time, we've got higher oil prices. We've got the United Auto strikes. Uh, We've got a possible shutdown in terms of the US government, making payment of student debts even more complicated. So what does this mean for the for the American community? Uh, excuse me, for the U.S. economy. Yeah, because for the longest time, the consumer has been propping up um, economic spending, just mm. keeping things afloat. Uh, they've just been very resilient. Perhaps this is the time where that resilience is going to falter. Now, and if you look at the United Auto Workers strike, you know it's go- it's been going for one week with only three factories uh, being affected right now. But if there's no further negotiations going to take place by the end of tonight, you know, UAD President Sean Fain said they will widen the strike and it's still going to target to hit the big trees, cash cow vehicles, which are the full-size pickup trucks and SUVs, and will set back their EV transition plans. Now, unfortunately, the clear winner of this UAD, UAW strike will be Tesla and foreign OEMs from Toyota to Volkswagen, which obviously will take this opportunity to push ahead their own EV plans and grab market share. So a lot of repercussions going on in the economy now, right? A lot of different uh, pieces to watch in terms of how the consumer is going to play out in the months ahead. Uh, But before uh, that, let's also take a look at something happening closer to home in terms of the delivery uh, service landscape in the country or even in the region. Mm. Because the question is, are we going to see Grab uh, hold a monopoly in ASEAN in the food delivery space? Uh, Given the rumors or speculation or reports, are they they confirmed that uh, it could actually acquire Food Panda. Yeah, because Delivery Hero, which is the owner of this business, uh, is looking to sell Singapore, Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, the Philippines, and Thailand. Apparently, the deal is still under negotiation. As much as 1.07 billion US dollars could be the price tag for this unit. Now, because, let's face it, food delivery business. Everybody uses it. Well, not everybody. I don't use it. I know a lot of people do. I use it. Yeah, but it's actually not very profitable. You don't really make any money from this. Everybody is on the cuffs of making money, but they haven't really done so. So I think uh, Delivery Hero is like, okay, enough. You know, we want to exit Asia. We want to look at other businesses. Um, they've suffered 323 million euros of losses. This is the parent company, uh, same time a year ago. So Grab has got this history of acquiring competitors. Remember Uber? We had Uber in Malaysia. We didn't have it. Grab bought over the business, and voila, Grab became even bigger. So, is this such is such a move a good thing for consumers? Right. Yeah, and Grab, you know, Grab has made ten acquisitions and nineteen investments over the course of its history. Isn't it not the first time they're going to food, right? Because they just recently acquired Jaya Grocer in Malaysia back in twenty eleven. Yeah, but that's uh, like groceries per se. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then you got Hungry Goware, which is food reviews and restaurant operators. So I, I think generally, in all you know, Grab did earlier announce that it's going to bring forward its profitability target and expects mm. to break even in third quarter rather than the fourth quarter as previously projected. So the business is diversifying, and that's probably good for them. And yes, maybe they can see the profitability targets come closer, but. I really do echo what you said, Shaoning, about whether this is going to be good for the consumer because already we see delivery prices for food. It's skyrocketing at the yes. moment. And and delivery drivers complaining that they're not making very much money, right? So if there's only one company they can work for, they have no almost no negotiation power in terms of, you know, what can I get for delivering uh, this food to people? 
Indeed. I think this is something that we need to watch very closely, whether the deal can actually come through, whether different regulators may actually contest it. Uh, We'll be watching this space. It is 9.47 in the morning. We're going to head into some messages, but we'll come back with more of the top stories this week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 9.48 a.m. You are listening to WTF or What's the Focus on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Ning and Mark Tan. Now, earlier on in the show, we were talking about changes in the food delivery landscape and whether Grab will acquire Food Panda to become the monopoly of food delivery in Asia. Uh, we are turning our attention to something quite related because, you know, food delivery, that's pretty much the same as eating, dining out, right? And that became a topic of conversation on social media this week because of remarks from a certain minister. Economy Minister Rafizi Ramli didn't say that during the breakfast grill, but did do so in a Malaysia Kini interview. He said that Malaysians have become addicted to eating out and are spending a considerable portion of their earnings every month for such a habit... Basically saying, you know, look, if you ate at home, you probably can save a bit of money. But I think this has really... Uh, it struck a nerve. Right? Yes. <laughs> it struck a nerve with a lot of people. Um, what do you think? Why were people so um, so irked by these comments? I don't know. If I, if I was to look at myself many years ago when as a single bachelor living by myself, I ate all my meals outside. Because on a cost economy point of view, it's not economical for me to buy my own groceries, buy my own food, cooking all utensils and cook by myself. It's actually cheaper to eat outside. Both in terms of cost and time, right? right, Yeah. yeah. But to be fair to Rafizi, um, he admitted that the people are not to be blamed. He said this was the unintended consequences of policies of the past. I'm like, policy of the past forced people to eat out more and then no chance to save money? I'm not sure what uh, the... the, Yeah, I I don't don't follow the connection. Mm -hmm. But uh, he he wasn't... uh, blaming anybody Mm. he says but this is his theory in terms of why cost of living is so high is because people are eating out i would like to point out though that people eating out is also a source of income for restaurant and and other food service uh people right Mm. so i feel like uh if more people are eating in that is also going to eat into uh the income or revenue of those who work in the food service industry you know i feel like you can't just look at it from one side or the other it's kind of a they're two sides of the same coin yeah and also let's be very practical here okay we're not saying eating out or not eating out is good i mean you make your own personal choices based on the budget that you have and even the choices in terms of where you eat out will be determined by how much money you have and the good thing and this is the good thing to remind ourselves in malaysia we have a wide range of choice it's not like it's hey, wait wait till you to go to some northern european country where there is no cheap eating out at all even if you're earning a norwegian wage they don't have the luxury like we do where we can afford to have you know a decent breakfast for less than two ringgit even if you wanted to buy a small bunkus of nasi lemak kosong um, you know the plain one with no lauk don't get excited just I'm looking at you and I'm like where is this place shouting tell no, me where to find it small tiny packets you don't get any sotong nothing but you get something um, so the point is there's choices out there and also people just because this is also Malaysian KL lifestyle right we take ages to get to our uh, office and then we take ages to come back even if we take public transport sometimes it can take one hour imagine you finish your work day at 6 30 and then you've got to get a bus take a train by the time you get home it's 8 p.m or 7 30 and then you have to start prepping wow that's a lot you know that's a lot to ask people so i don't blame them for saying eating out is probably an easier option so it's a balance of things but i think malaysians yeah we should exercise our rights to shop around 
and find what's you know value for us. So I think like previously earlier this year, the EPF Belajawan Ku study did indicate that for a single person living in Klang Valley, you need to budget about 610 ringgit for food. So I think you know if you divide it by 31 days, that averages about 20 ringgit a day. So I think on the weekdays, if you're working and you're stuck in traffic, yes, you could go out and have you know your roti chanais, your nasi lemaks, and maybe keep about 10 to 15 ringgit for dinner. But on the weekends, you know, maybe go for something healthy and cook for yourself, you know. Well, if you want to hear more uh, thoughts and conversations on this, uh, Inside Story, Evening Edition's Inside Story did uh, cover this and some very, you know, I think it's definitely worth listening to the podcast. Uh, look that up on the BFM app. And meanwhile, we've also had other uh, debates on social media about um, this time attire and attire in schools, uh, why national costumes aren't mm. being permitted uh, to be worn. Okay, so this is an FMT story, right? So there was a school allegedly barred students from wearing other cultures' traditional attire. Uh, so it... it we don't know the name of the school. It did not provide, actually. Uh, at least this article doesn't say so. But the what is interesting is the Ministry of Education has basically stepped in and issued a statement and said that they had discussions already with the school and the parents and basically said students are allowed to wear appropriate traditional clothing when attending cultural and artistic activities. Uh, the students are also allowed to wear additional accessories such as bracelets, necklaces and others to complement the traditional attire because the FMT reported that this that a student claimed her school had barred its students from wearing the traditional clothes of culture which were not their own. You know, being, being a father of three, you know, this is something my own kids look forward to every year, whether it's Madeka Day or, or Malaysia Day, right? Because they get to dress up in their own national costumes or other and people's yeah, cultural yeah. costumes. I, I don't, I mean, like, you know, we get to wear our baju kebaya on mm. usually when we have any activity, like for Raya, that's a nice theme. Wear your chongsam uh, for Chinese It's a mix and match every yeah. year, right? Because your kid doesn't wear this, want to wear the same chongsam every year. So, you know, they want to wear other people's traditional attire. And it does bring the people together, you know, it's like a good old, Buka Ruma kind of thing, you know, where everybody comes and mix together and you know, they do their own little parade, you know, so it's good, good fun for all these kids. It is very sad to me that this has become such an issue of contention. And I and I do hope that it's worked out uh, at that school and also mm -hmm. more broadly. Um, it's sad that uh, something as innocent as uh, what you wear uh culturally uh, becomes uh, such an issue? Well, it's not the first time because uh, UKM also, eh, last year, they got into a bit of a social media big bad because they basically sent out a memo saying that uh, saris and chongsans were not acceptable outfits for convocation. Of course, that was subsequently redrawn, but it, it doesn't sit well when we live in a multiracial, multicultural country. Absolutely not. Uh, all right, let us end um, our episode today with a bit of a tribute. Uh, because Sad one, though. Indeed, seven-year-old Blake, one of the Malaysian Fire and Rescue Department search dogs involved in the Batangkali Landslide Rescue Mission last December, has been euthanized several days ago. He had been diagnosed with uh, late-stage cancer, um, and this was a humane way uh, to uh, you know, put him to rest. I think last year, you know, we saw what happened at Batangkali and, you know, the social media platforms all abuzz with all these canine tracker dogs that really, I think, work really hard and save a lot of lives in search for all these victims. And, you know, I think all of us, you know, at one part of our life, we just love dogs because they're just, you know, man's best friend. 
So the loss of Blake was felt by many Malaysians with outpouring of condolences on social media after the announcements on the Ministry of Local Government Development's Facebook. I'm really glad that uh, we are recognising just the important role that uh, canines play mm-hmm. and I hope that also translates to uh, creating a society that has more empathy uh, for all animals, uh, dogs, cats, strays uh, alike. Yes, for sure. Okay, I think that's all the time that we have for WTF this morning. Coming up next, we have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin. And then after that, we're handing over the baton to Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.